Thanks very much. Uh, uh, welcome everyone uh, from wherever you travel. Someone has just come from across the street. <laughs> I'm delighted to be here to celebrate the Pluralism Project's 25th anniversary. And even more delighted that it should occur during Harvard Divinity School's bicentennial year, our 200th birthday. Uh, in light of both those milestones, I'd like to say just a few words about the remarkable work of my colleague, uh, uh, Professor Diana Eck, uh, and her colleagues about pluralism at HDS. For 25 years, the Pluralism Project has led the way in exploring the type of engagement with diversity to which HDS and indeed wider Harvard enthusiastically aspire. Today, religious and cultural diversity, along with closely related issues like immigration, are top of mind in our society, and not always good top of mind in our society. But not so a generation ago when Professor Eck observed that the diversity of the students in our classes was increasing. A course on world religions in New England led to the exploration and documentation of the astonishing religious diversity in the greater Boston area alone. The success of that effort inspired Professor Eck and her team to cast their gaze to communities across the country, from Muslims in Providence, Hindus from Baltimore, Sikhs from Chicago, Jains from New Jersey, as she has described it. In the process, the Pluralism Project has created immense resources for educators, journalists, civic leaders, and religious communities. These include case studies, research reports, films, and an award-winning website, all of which enable users to understand the changes in American religious demography and the implications of those changes and what we mean by pluralism to begin with. Perhaps most importantly, the project has helped citizens in the United States to expand our idea of who precisely we mean when we say, we the people. You can see the impact of this type of work and an illustration of the changes of documents here at HDS. Just visit the Faces of Divinity uh, exhibit assembled by Professor Anne Browdy. It chronicles the school's 200-year history from a Unitarian seminary in all but name to a multi-religious divinity school for the 21st century. If you do visit the uh, 21 exhibits around our campus buildings, um, you may be struck, as I often have, by two pictures in particular on the wall of Andover Hall's main foyer, where you've just uh, come in from. One is the Faculty of Divinity in 1954, Roughly two rows of men, <laughs> all white, uh, most not only Christian but largely Protestant, in line with the school's curriculum and student body. On top of that picture is another one, a color shot of the more than 40 HDS faculty at Convocation in 2015. About half are scholars of non-Christian religions, including Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam. And while the quality of their academic work is the primary reason that each has a place at HDS, our faculty also reflect the school's intentional engagement with the religious and cultural diversity that is increasingly the reality in our country and in the world. This is even more true of our students, who represent about 30 different faith traditions and denominations and come from every corner of the globe and most states in the Union. So it's hard to understate the value of the Pluralism Project's work 
particularly now when it is uh, a critical counterbalance to what Professor Egg identifies, quote, as the voices that promote misunderstanding and exclusion in America today. It's no wonder then that she was recognized as the foremost researcher and educator about America's new religious diversity in 1998 when she received the National Humanities Medal. Nearly 20 years later, the Pluralism Project <coughs> is still winning awards, including the 2016 Guru Nanak Interfaith Prize from Hofstra University for the project's dedication to, quote, promoting tolerance and religious understanding through education, research, and leadership training. I'm very proud then, both as dean as a, and as a colleague of Professor uh, Dan Eck, to have this event here on the HDS campus. Like all of you, I'm eager to get to today's panels, particularly the discussion later of pluralism and the practice of peace building, which we've tried to um, uh, create and sustain a vibrant initiative uh, around that topic here at HDS in the last couple of years. So I'll close now by saluting everyone involved with the Pluralism Project for all they have done to shed light and lift religion in this country, for all that we've learned from you in the past 25 years, and all that I know we'll learn from you in the future. Thanks for all you've done, and welcome everyone. Thank you, Dean Hampton. And we will have a word from the Dean of Harvard College, Rakesh Kurana, in a little over an hour. He, all deans have their own schedules, they <laughs> know. But it is a great pleasure that we have this here. And thanks to Harvard Divinity School for being our host. Thanks to the many groups who have helped fund this, uh, this effort. Uh, the University's Provostial Fund, the Rosenberg Fund, the Kolchowski Foundation, the El Hebrey Foundation, Arthur Vining Davis, and the Global Institute for Six Studies. Uh, so we have a, a, a lot of work to do. And when I think back about the origins of the Pluralism Project in 1991, and think, uh, if you were alive then, most of you were, <laughs> what was happening in 1991? Uh, we were at the beginning of the Gulf War, of what was called Desert Storm, Operation De Desert Storm. Uh, we're still seeing the resonance of all of that today. Uh, it was the time of the Civil War in Somalia and the breaking apart of that, uh, that fragile place and the stream of refugees that came to the United States and elsewhere the settling of Somali refugees in so many communities in the United States. Uh, we're seeing echoes of that, not Somalia today, but Syria. Um, that was also the year 1991 of the beating of Rodney King, and that horrible thing that we saw over and over, the film of that, and of course, it stood out in 1991, and now, uh, literally every week we seem to see some of the same echoes. Uh, it was the collapse of Yugoslavia in 1991 into fragmented ethnic identities and states. And it also was the year that Aung San Suu Kyi won the Nobel Prize for Peace uh, in you know, the second or third year of her imprisonment, which lasted for 25 years, more or less off and on. So we have changed, but we still see the same difficult, difficult issues. 
And uh, as all of you know, I sort of began my work in India, uh, looking at uh, Hindu and other religious traditions. Uh, the work of the Pluralism Project was really started by students because students flocked into my classes and they were from very many different places. They were the children of the new immigration. And so it was really through the changing demography of Harvard College that this, uh, this project took its genesis. And we did begin with student research, uh, first in a the classroom, then summer research. And I think of the people that we uh, spoke with last night, we had students from the various uh, religious communities of Harvard College today. And looking back at the students who were grad students and undergraduates during the genesis of the project in those early years, and we have some of them with us today. I think of Ellie Pierce, who has been with us for longer than any and is now our research director and our chief case writer. Um, and we're trying very hard to sort of duplicate her in one way or another. Uh, and, uh, and Jenny Song, who spoke last night. Jenny, raise your hand who worked in Seattle one of those first years and documented the presence of 60-some Buddhist temples in Seattle. And Chloe Breyer, who's on our panel today, who worked uh, in Orange County in a small Vietnamese home temple that was struggling with the zoning commission of that town and wrote her senior thesis on that as well. And Zaheer Ali, who was involved in those very early years researching African-American Islam. And there were many others who went to their own hometown and who were now professors in various places working on some of these issues still. Stuart Chandler, who wrote the first directory of Chinese Buddhist communities in the United States. Chris Coble, who is now uh, at the Lilly Foundation and wrote about the formation of interfaith groups in Boston. And Jonathan Ebel, a professor now, uh, but it, then researching his hometown in Minneapolis. And Lance Laird, who was here, where are you Lance? Who worked on Islam in New England and now works on is Muslims and, uh, and the medical establishment in New England. And Duncan Williams, who worked uh, on Japanese Americans in the United States and uh, wrote one of the first really great books on the internment. And Doug Hicks, who can't be with us today, who worked on uh, religious pluralism in the workplace. These were uh, just a few of the many, many uh, students who were involved in this project from the get-go. And that continued to the very generation of students who spoke last night. This is research that they have been doing sort of on the front lines of discovery in the United States. And then we had people who are affiliates, and I should say who a little bit about that, I'm not going to say much, but affiliates were sort of faculty members at other institutions as well who wanted to do this kind of work in their own area and have students involved, their own students involved in research. And so we have affiliates from Bowling Green in Ohio, they're here somewhere, uh, yes, good, uh, from Cedar Crest in Allentown, Pennsylvania, uh, there he is, Alan Richardson, uh, from uh, Kinesius in Buffalo, New York, uh, Jonathan Lawrence, and uh, I, I'm sure there are others here, but let me just, University of Michigan, Dearborn, really uh, important, University of Western Kentucky, Emory, UC Irvine, Seattle, 
LaSalle, Loyola in New Orleans, University of Richmond, Reed in Portland, Rollins in Florida, Barnard in New York, Duke, Carleton, Kent State, Furman, UNC, Baker in Kansas. I mean, this is a lot of universities. We kind of want to do this sort of research ourselves. And many of our uh, affiliates who have written great books about it, as Scott Hansen's here, having just written uh, this great book about religious diversity in Queens that began with just one street in Queens and then uh, developed into a, a great book. And then we have advisors who are with us, academic advisors, Neelima Shukrabat uh, from the beginning, Ali Asani who will be with us, Gurinder Singh Man uh, who will be with us later today. And then, of course, our staff. And I just want to thank the people who have been staff in this project because uh, there are usually only three of us me and maybe two other people um, in, uh, when you see the pluralism project, people sometimes imagine a whole room of people. It's just three people or interns. And this is the energy that we have drawn upon, a lot of voluntaristic energy. And um, I want to point out who is here today, Susan Shoemaker. Whoops, where are you, Susan? Susan, who was sort of the first uh, assistant, you might say, and who uh, went on to steer us uh, into doing a CD-ROM, which I had never heard of at the time, and now works uh, in uh, documentary film production with Ken Burns, and she has done a wonderful piece that you can see on the Japanese internment camps, and works on many of these, uh, these important uh, films. And then Grove Harris, who I don't think is here today, uh, worked for a number of years, and uh, Ellie Pierce, of course, uh, throughout as researcher and staff member and, uh, and chief organizer of many film festivals, many events, and now the major case writer for uh, the Pluralism Project. And we have several of our protagonists from different cases with us during this conference. If you're a protagonist, <laughs> <laughs> Jen Penn and uh, Imam Salim and Parvez Ahmed, all of whom we have written about and our students have discussed. And uh, then Catherine Laurie, who took us down the road quite a step, uh, a long step, until uh, she was snatched away by uh, the uh, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and also by the National Council of Churches where she served as the president for a term and, uh, and still writes uh, about the issues of identity and religious pluralism. And Whitney Barth, who is no longer with us, who sent us greetings, all of you on this occasion, uh, but but wisely decided she would go to law school. <laughs> real connection here. And so she's at law school in Chicago. And then Lexi Salomon, who is uh, with us now, Lexi, who hit the ground running in July, I think. Was it the first of July? And has really carried us to this day. So many, many people to thank. But especially people say, oh, congratulations. This is if I, you know, if it's, uh, you know, uh, our 25th wedding anniversary. <laughs> this is not, uh, this is not for me. This is for everyone. Uh, congratulations on, uh, you know, being part of this project. And we've gathered a number of you here to be advisors. 
uh, because you've been part of the project for a long time, and we need your advice. So uh, some of the, uh, uh, could we have a show of hands of who are our advisors here? We have several of you. Yeah, all you guys, good, excellent. And um, we're gonna meet afterwards and sort of uh, see what, what, what should we do? And, uh, you know, not just how have we done and let's celebrate it, but, um, you know, it seems a little early to fold our tent and say that, uh, you know, the, the work is done. No, the work needs to carry on. Uh, and we need to think of the ways in which that might happen. But for now, I would like just to say a word of introduction to this wonderful panel that's been seated here so very um, uh, patiently. And I think in order of the program, uh, we've asked them to reflect on broad issues, uh, but also specific instances of issues of diversity and inclusion. And uh, we'll begin with Sahir Ali, who is again one of our first, uh, one of our first researchers and one of, uh, according to Brooklyn Magazine, the most hundred most influential people in Brooklyn culture. Um, he's an oral historian now at Brooklyn Historical Society and has worked on issues of American Islam and African American Islam for a long time. And then we'll go to Chloe Breyer, who was, again, one of our early researchers uh, working on essentially church-state issues, if you could say that, in uh, a wonderful small Vietnamese community in Garden Grove, California, wrote an article about that, and uh, many of us have visited that place in the wake of her research and seen it flourish. And Nancy Khalil, who is a PhD candidate in anthropology here, at grad student, a fellow at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, and is writing her dissertation on the politics of American Islam with an emphasis on the profession of the Imam in America. And then uh, Harpreet Singh, scholar of South Asian uh, religious traditions and languages, who has done his PhD here in, uh, in South Asian uh, religious culture, who taught in the Department of South Asian Studies and in the immediate wake of 9-11 was one of the co-founders of the Sikh Coalition, which is the largest Sikh civil rights organization in North America. So we're privileged to have these people with us this morning. Uh, each of them will speak for about 10 minutes uh, and then we'll open the discussion uh, for themselves and also for us. So thank you all for being here. Uh, good morning. I want to thank uh, Professor Ack and everyone here for this project. As, as she mentioned, I was one of the earliest um, researchers. Um, I think I was one of the few undergraduate researchers, too, in, in its early stages. Um, and what I wanted to talk about today um, is thinking about religious pluralism and the work of the Pluralism Project in the age of Black Lives Matter. And a key to this, of course, is the history of African American Islam. Now, when I started the work on the Pluralism Project, most people talked about um, new religions in America, and they talked about Islam as a new religion, primarily framing Islam as an immigrant religion. 
And um, fortunately, um, Professor Ed had, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep calling you Professor Ed because it's like habit. Fortunately, the project had a broader view of, of, of Islam and granted me an opportunity to research African-American Muslims in New York City um, in 1992 to date myself. Um, and the reason why this is important, the reason why African-American Muslims are important in thinking about how we think about religious pluralism in America is because, uh, one, it complicates the arrival story of Islam in America because, of course, there are waves of Islam's advent in America uh, with the arrival of the forced migration of enslaved African Muslims. Um, there is another wave of Islam's arrival uh, in the African-American community through the missionary work of the Ahmadiyyas in the early 1910s and 20s. And then there's the revival movements, uh, some connected to and others not connected to what we would consider classical Islam. Groups like the Moorish Science Temple, the Nation of Islam, um, and so on and so forth. So the, the history of African-American uh, Muslims challenges the attempt to frame Islam as a new religion or as a religion of, of immigrants or people you know, who are new. It also challenges, of course, the Judeo-Christian narrative of American religion for very much the same reason. Um, and finally, it locates Islam in contexts that reveal interracial, I'm sorry, inter-religious relationships that were already existing, um, that revealed political engagements that had been happening throughout the 20th century, certainly, uh, reveal institution building, and also counter-hegemonic acts in the form of resistance. Uh, primarily, you see this through the civil rights movement. And this last point is especially important for my little brief presentation. Now, for people who are unfamiliar with, and you know, Black Lives Matter, is a movement, it is a hashtag, it is an organization, it is a network, um, very much like uh, the civil rights movement, it is impossible to collapse it to a single figure or a single group. Um, so there are many people who have adopted this, um, this hashtag or this phrase to characterize their activities. But what we can say is what falls under the umbrella of Black Lives Matter. And that is, it centers black lives and voices, it affirms intersectional identities, it challenges white supremacy, uses social media, and is led primarily by women. Women have been doing most of the labor of Black Lives Matter. In fact, the, the phrase itself was coined by three African-American women. Um, and so this is important in thinking about how um, the Muslim community, and, the, and specifically the African-American Muslim community, has been impacted by uh, this movement. So I wanted to highlight um, some examples of this um, to help us think through what some of these questions are. Um, and I think it's important to think of the context of African-American Islam. So I started the project in 92. This was the year that Spike Lee's movie Malcolm X um, premiered, um, which cast a very different frame for how people understood Islam. Um, in 1995, I, I worked on the Million Man March, which for all of its controversy, was the first time in the history of the United States that the Adhan was recited um, from the National Mall. It was opened, the march was opened with the recitation of the Adhan. 
The march was closed with the Louis Farrakhan reciting Al-Fatiha. Um, and this, of course, was beamed through you know, CNN, C-SPAN to millions of people, so that was a significant moment. Um, throughout the, the late 80s and 90s, there are waves of hip-hop artists who identified with Islam in various strains, including what we consider traditional Islam, people like Mostaf, um, and then certainly later in the, in the early 20, 21st century, people like Lupe Fiasco. So you have this uh, context for uh, a very vibrant uh, Muslim community and Muslim voice and culture in the African American community. Now after, in, in, in 1999, um, in New York City, uh, an African Muslim immigrant was killed by police. His name was Ahmadou Diallo. And he was killed, uh, he was pursued and he was killed while taking out a wallet out of his pocket. And it was, you know, they thought it was, a, it, it's always, we think it's a gun, it's, it's always that. Um, and so the language of profiling was already being used to counter racist police practices, right? Um, at that time, it was seen as a black problem. After 9-11, <laughs> we began to understand that what was seen in a very uh, small frame as a black problem um, was a larger problem, right? Because after 9-11, uh, members of the Muslim community who are outside of the African American community experienced many of the same kinds of racialized treatment um, that African Americans had experienced and began to draw on many of those kinds of strategies to challenge that treatment. Right? And so today, we will hear Islamophobia talked about in very much the same vein as racism. Right? Um, what happened, though, after 9-11 is because of the framing of that conflict and because of how Muslims were continuously portrayed as a foreign group or as an immigrant group, when officials and the media sought to look for voices of the Muslim communities in America, they seldom spoke to African-American Muslims. Um, who constitute, depending on the, you know, the surveys, 30 to 40% of the American Muslim community. So this erasure, this invisibility, uh, is something that African American Muslims have been contending with um, and have been inspired by Black Lives Matter to force these conversations. So how has that been happening? Um, so I'm going to give some examples, and these are websites, and they have the links as the title. Um, the first uh, example I want to talk about is Sapelo Square and SapeloSquare.com. Uh, as a point of disclosure, I'm an advisor to this project. Um, it is led by an African American scholar, Suad Abdul Kabir, uh, who has, has a book coming out soon. But this is a project that is designed to showcase the politics, the history, the culture, and religious life in all of its diversity of African-American Muslims. And the naming of it, I mean, we, we chose Sapelo Square because if you're unfamiliar, Sapelo Island is one of those islands off the coast of Georgia and the Carolinas where we have the longest surviving African uh, religious traditions, right? And so African Muslim traditions survived well into the early 20th century, so much so that when interviewers were doing the WPA interviews in the 1930s and interviewing people throughout the South, they interviewed uh, descendants of people on Sapelo Island who described at the time 
Muslim practices, but because the interviewers didn't know that's what they were hearing, it was again masked and erased and made invisible. So this is one project. A second is the Muslim Anti-Racist Collaborative, or MuslimArc.org. And this is led by two women, again, Marjorie um, Hill and Namira Islam. And this uh, group grew out of the efforts to challenge racism within the Muslim community. Um, you know, there was, uh, there are some ongoing challenges. One of the kind of flashpoints was the use of the term Abid, uh, that is sometimes used by uh, Arab uh, Americans or Arab Muslims to refer to African American and descendants of, of African descended Muslims. And Abid means um, slave, right? Um, and it's been very contentious, but this grew out of that to challenge um, the racism within the uh, Muslim community and the kinds of erasures of, of African American Muslims. The third example is MuslimsMakeItPlain.com. And Muslims Make It Plain is another collective mobilized against police brutality. So this is the clear descendant and marriage of you know, Black Lives Matter and the African-American Muslim tradition. And of course, the, the photo, as you see, is a photograph of Malcolm. He's holding up a, 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 a copy of the Muhammad Speaks newspaper, which was the paper of the Nation of Islam. And this is from a 1962 case where Muslims in Los Angeles, uh, the mosque was raided by police and they were shot. And some died, right? So in, in this, African-American Muslims are drawing from their own history and from the current contemporary moment um, to provide a rich critique of, of the society. Now, um, again, highlighting and centering, um, highlighting and centering uh, black uh, voices and lives, critiquing white supremacy, affirming intersectional identities of being black and Muslim, um, and in that, there have been, and using social media, and in social media, there have been hashtags that have circulated. So I'm going to show like two or three. Uh, one is being black and Muslim. And if you do a Twitter search, you'll see like a whole string, but I highlighted some. Um, so being black and Muslim is my existence often offends. My slave heritage shan't be mentioned, my faith shan't be lived. So this again is that intersectionality, being at the intersection of being black and Muslim, two identities that are being erased, right? Um, here's another one. Being black and Muslim means that when white people walk in the elevator, they don't know whether to grab their wallets or tip the FBI hotline, right? Again, the intersectional identity. And you can see this was a fairly popular tweet, you know, by the number of retweets and likes. Um, and the last two examples I'll show are critiques within the Muslim community. So there was another hashtag, Black in MSA, and MSA is Muslim Student Association. This is talking about the experience of African American Muslims on college campuses. Um, here's one that says, forgetting Islam didn't come to this country on a student visa, it came in the belly of a cargo ship in the heart of, of a slave. Right? Again, you can see the resonance of this tweet by its popularity. And finally, uh, black and MSA uh, not supporting social justice causes because MSA is supposed to be apolitical. Good luck fighting Islamophobia without solidarity. 
This is a rare, you know, and then so I think of the need of the pluralism project, you know, moving from diversity to engagement of difference, moving from tolerance to understanding difference, moving from um, relativism to, to um, commitments, to understanding encountering different commitments. I mean, the work of the pluralism project, I'm so happy that we are gathering because there's so much that the principles of pluralism can inform our current uh, moment. So thank you. Well, I, thank you so much. And, and to Diana and everybody who made this possible, it is a real um, delight to be here. My name is, is Chloe Breyer, and I am uh, executive director of something called the Interfaith Center of New York, which I want to speak with you about a little bit in terms of what our work has do has done. And I also would like to enter the competition for the earliest pluralism project researcher. <laughs> um, so, but uh, you know, I um, work in an organization that's been around for uh, since 1997. Um, definitely picked up a bit of steam after 9-11, having had the first uh, interfaith press conference, we think, after that event, um, with Muslim and non-Muslims involved, and really specializing in grassroots work among a variety of faith traditions. And as we're talking about New York City, uh, where we think, according to National Geographic, there are neighborhoods that are among the most genetically diverse on the planet, uh, we have a lot of religious diversity, as you know. The approach that we, we have taken over the years has really focused on interfaith at the street level. And what that means, and forgive me for those of you who have heard this before, and those who've attended our um, uh, Summer Institute for Teachers have definitely heard this before. Uh, when you look at the alternate side parking list in New York City, for those of you who are not from New York, you know, well, I'll tell you that if you have a car, you will have to move your car generally between 10 and 11.30 in the morning at some other convenient time when you have nothing better to do than sit in your car for an hour and a half while the street is cleaned on one side and then you move it back. And then the other side of the street is later cleaned. Now there is one type of exception for that activity and that is the religious holiday, or for that matter, the secular ho holiday. And um, we think, when we think of those holidays, you know, for the longest time, certainly Christmas has been on there. I think, uh, you know, a decade or two ago, there was and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur were added. And, um, and then we got uh, a few others, and those included both Eids, and Diwali, I think that's the latest. So if you look at this list of alternate side parking exceptions, you have a pretty good idea of wh what are the religiously diverse communities that have learned, in a sense, to negotiate the public square enough so that their tradition can be reflected in this list. If you want to graduate from that and look at the list of public school holidays, that's another type of measure. And this year, after a long 20-year campaign, the second of two Eids was recognized in the New York City public schools, where 10% at least of, um, of the, the participants, the students, are Muslim. 
Uh, and um, while our former mayor was very much against this idea, thinking it would open the, uh, it would be just the slippery slope, like what happened in Southeast Asia, you know, the domino effect, um, we would, uh, it, 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 you know, there has shown to be um, a certain truth to that, as we now have a Lunar New Year and Wally campaign in, in the public schools, yet the real rejoicing that happened among so many in the community that have really had to struggle with this, and then the interest that has come from non-Muslims to have to explain these holidays has been a sort of really interesting other factor that we're not, not so certain was, was taken into account. So these are the types of issues, and of course, I can't forget zoning, because now after 25 years, I don't seem to be able to get out of the parking lot. We have uh, on our hands right now, um, or quite recently, a case in New Jersey of um, uh, a mosque being, um, having had the zoning laws changed in effect so that it couldn't be built. That's, that case was litigated, and then along with the stop and frisk case, Floyd, which together you pointed out a very good example practically of um, police reform where both in, in New York, you know, Muslim and, um, Muslims of all backgrounds came together with African Americans, both who were Muslim and non-Muslim, about challenging our police, uh, our local police force and how it was behaving and the lack of transparency, particularly after 9-11. So those, um, so that, that zone, those two pieces of, of litigation also affect life on the street um, in, uh, in, a, in a way that affects you know, religious diversity. So there are three different areas in which we kind of do our work and seek to, um, uh, to, to really um, to, to achieve what our mission statement is. And I'm going to try to, to segue here into our... Um, Let's see, can you all see this? Yes. We've got our, our mission, uh, a little bit on peacemaking. Um, uh, what this, what this uh, before the, the case studies, just one thing for those of you, I know we're going to talk more about religion and peacemaking, um, but Johann Galtung has this definition of, of you know, a multi-tiered definition of, of peace that includes both uh, idea of negative peace, that is the cessation of violence, and positive peace, which is the existence or the challenging of systemic violence, and um, includes many other things that we would equate with justice in society. And I hope that when we get to peacemaking, we can talk about that, because I think many different types of religious dialogue um, and activity fit into to that particular definition of peacemaking. All right. So um, we're going to fast forward to this. What I'm going to show you is one of the examples of community-to-community um, community work that we did sort of after this, um, uh, the Ground Zero mosque controversy, um, where a few bloggers took a plan that actually never really existed or materialized and managed to create a great controversy out of it. And it was particularly, uh, it was something where uh, listserv that had many of the 9-11 um, survivors and uh, cleanup workers had gotten a hold of this um, link that went to, uh, I think, a Pamela Geller blog and created an enormous amount of real backlash. Um, in that case, 
We saw it happening in Sheep's Head Bay, in particular where there was a many um, mosque that was trying to be built, and then that's where the zoning issues ran into. Likewise, there was a sale that was supposed to happen between the archdiocese of a piece of a, a convent, I think that had been abandoned, that was supposed to go to the Muslim um, American society that, that was, you know, scuttled at the last moment. So this seemed, when we got a look, um, when we did a, a bit of work, um, to uh, try to counteract this Islamophobic response through some of the interfaith work. Advocacy on free speech was one set of examples with these subway ads. Um, and, you know, many of you, I think, were um, involved in some of these, you know, if the, if the, if the, uh, the antidote to hate speech can be more speech, this was examples of the types of ads that people took out after a judge ruled that family Geller's free speech enabled her to put these ads up. So what, um, in addition to advocacy, uh, there was a, um, an effort that we did with service providers in um, the, uh, both Muslim and Roman Catholic service providers in three of the boroughs, Manhattan, um, uh, uh, the Bronx and Staten Island, really letting these communities come up with their own um, uh, joint interfaith service projects where they felt their uh, alliance together could be an add value to a problem that the community faced. In the Bronx, it was hunger, and they went together um, to help uh, register people for the census so that people in the Bronx could get more federal aid, which they deserved. And likewise, went to um, in, in Manhattan, there was, uh, you know, we did some work around immigration, um, but the West African Muslim communities in Harlem really needed, and Catholic charities have a great set of resources to help. Finally, and this is one I was really trying to get to the whole time, so forgive my sort of lack of, of, uh, of streamlining this here, but this was an effort in Staten Island, where if you remember, Many of the um, uh, first responders, fire and police, many of whom are Roman Catholic, live you know, in, in Staten Island. And there was quite a bit of tension that existed between them and the Albanian Muslim community that was the, the largest Muslim community there. Um, I don't think Catholic charities really knew this. Like, this is where the street matters. Because the people we talked with at Catholic charities you know, they had a vague idea that what we were doing was important. But it wasn't until we got the two, um, got the uh, sort of the stakeholders who were to be a, a Mirage Islamic school and um, a couple of the, the teen federations that were associated with some of the Roman Catholic churches, we got them together to do some sort of activities that were very nice. And then they went and we went to each other's mosques. We went to each other's houses of worship. It worked out well when everybody was going to the uh, Roman Catholic, um, the, you know, the, the, the Saint Our Lady of Good Counsel, and everyone got to you know, shine the brass, what have you. When we went to the to the Mirage, um, uh, to the Albanian um, Islamic uh, Center, uh, three of the families dropped out. Just flat, wouldn't let their kids go inside, dropped out of the program, which was, I think, an eye-opener for the, the Catholic Charities folks. You can see how the rest excited the rest of the parents were in this picture, and they huddled in the corner, literally, um, and uh, the kids sort of, you know, continue on. Wait, what happened next? Why is it doing this? I'm pressing the button. Okay, but, but again, the advantage of kids is, you know, 
it was a good activity in, in, the, in the church, but when you got to clean stuff in the mosque, and there's that much rug material that it needs to get clean, you get to use industrial cleaning equipment. So that seemed to lead, that seemed to warm up the kids quite a bit. And then um, the, the, uh, the parents followed. So that's really, I, I'm gonna um, just close by saying that um, a uh, education, which I haven't, I mentioned advocacy, I've mentioned you know, direct contact, but I haven't actually, I, I want to just close with um, ex really building on your um, presentation a little bit by saying how important for the city of New York, the alliance between African-American Afri and um, uh, non-African-American Muslims have been in the area of police reform. And that change has happened in that area that is really quite, and we've gone through now through a couple of commissioners since this all started. Um, but there is, I think, you know, we moved to police, community policing, a sense of accountability that came with Floyd, and then these other um, anti, uh, the um, a set of guidelines called the Handshoe Guidelines that were put in place in the 60s to stop people, you know, the police spying on everyone. They were thrown out the window after 9-11 and Mr. John Miller arrived as the one accountable decider of all things to be spied on. I think, um, and uh, and we're now back to a situation where there's a bit more accountability because that that decision is is gonna is gonna happen soon and there's a settlement. So um, we are, are uh, our last piece of work with the police is a um, a religious diversity video which we will be using. They will be using in training. That if you'd like, I'd love to talk with you about that afterwards if you're interested. Thank you so much. PowerPoint, sorry. <laughs> There's kind of a struggle with PowerPoint in my department. Love the relationship. So my name is Nancy Khalil, and I'm here as a doctoral candidate in the anthropology department. My research is on MMs, as Dr. F mentioned. I'm also a co-founder of an organization called the Muslim Justice League. I serve on their board, and I've done a bunch of interfaith work and a bunch of work with the Muslim community for the past decade and a half or so. And what I wanted to do today was talk a little bit about the politics of inclusion. Uh, and I wanted to light a match or perhaps for some kindle a fire for what I hope will be a bright conversation that we'll have uh, in the discussion. As many of you know, a couple of weeks ago, it was one of the two Muslim holidays, Zaid al-Adha. And that holiday, it's Zaid al-Adha means Zaid of Sacrifice. And it commemorates um, the story of Prophet Ibrahim and his devotion being tested by God through a command to slaughter his son, Ismail. And instead, God saves Ismail and sends a sheep to be slaughtered instead. And it takes place every year on the 10th day of the last month of the Islamic calendar. So I don't know, you know, everybody celebrates holidays in different ways, but within Islam, we have two major Eids, and they're very festive occasions. You start your day praying. Um, at the mosque or some place that gathers a large congregation. And the traditions vary around the world, but they're all centered around festivity and happiness and joy. With the, the Eid al-Adha, there's also a slaughtering that takes place, particularly of sheep, 
and commemoration of the, the story behind the, um, the holiday, and that's a common practice. So meat is in part eaten, it's in part distributed to those who are near and dear, and to those who are in need. And in many Muslim-majority societies, you see the sheep overflowing in the streets and in the marketplace, and on the day of, you can see the slaughtering even happening in the streets, and the kids are watching it, and adults are witnessing it, and it sounds a bit jarring, you know, the thought of a little child watching a sheep being slaughtered, but, but for many, it's quite natural, and it's a time of happiness and a time of memory, and I think it's, you know, part of the circle of life that many of these children are privy to, children are privy to in a way that, like, many of our urban children are not so in this day and age. Even in addition, this year when I was in Egypt, I saw an overwhelming number of stuffed sheep that were all made in China in all different sizes and colors in the marketplace available for sale to, you know, commemorate and celebrate. And this holiday also coincides with the annual Hajj pilgrimage um, that takes place in Mecca on the mountain of Arafat in Saudi Arabia. And Muslims are asked to make this pilgrimage once in a lifetime if they're financially and physically able, and it brings together three million Muslims from all over the world. It's probably one of the most diverse activities you can find on planet Earth. I think one of the most beautiful descriptions of it is the one that Malcolm X's autobiography has, um, and it's also displayed in the movie that Sahir mentioned. And people there are really on an equal platform. They're almost dressed the same, performing the same rituals within the same time frame, and really meant to kind of remove a lot of the, the hierarchy that's common in our <coughs> For this year, in 2016, there was a very good chance that the 10th day of the last month of the Islamic calendar, the day of Eid al-Adha, would fall on 9-11. And that's the 15th anniversary of 9-11. And American Muslims were very scared. Um, you know, many say that on 9-11, Islam was hijacked. And in 2016, um, it became possible that Eid on that day might be hijacked. Because many Muslim leaders were calling for festivities to be canceled, celebrations to be delay delayed to another day. Um, some were calling for the day to be spent in service of neighbors, um, in, to join hands with interfaith partners, to. Uh, have events that were more um, calm and less festive. They were, by and large, there was by and large a very, you know, not universal, but loud enough theme of, of fear of celebration that was, that was voiced within the community. And there was a collective sigh of relief when the crescent moon was sighted and the new moon determined that it would be on September 12th. So much so that I saw a number of memes on social media very entertaining ones of people expressing relief somehow, and like, you know, how you look when you discover I is not on 9-11. <laughs> so, um, but what's fascinating about this day is that while it is a day where a tragedy occurred, it's not a day that of mourning here in the U.S. Like many of, you know, historically um, tragic days in our, his in, in our nation's history, we don't, we don't mourn them, but we do, we do remember Right in different ways, but we don't halt our schedule activities. You don't shut down theme parks. We don't cancel our sports games. You know, schools aren't dismissed. Gatherings are still taking place. But the way the Muslim community wanted to respond to this potential um, uh, coinciding of Eid and 9/11 was was to mourn in many ways, and it was emblematic of a strong fear that's resonating still within the Muslim community. Uh, so when, when I think about diversity and inclusion, I think those are very tricky concepts because we've colloquially built them up in our common parlance as desirable ideas. 
but we lose track of the influence of power dynamics on the pursuit of these ideals. So I'm referencing here Wendy Brown. She talks about this in her book called Regulating Aversion when she's talking about tolerance. And in that, she looks at tolerance through the lens of power and says that tolerance is almost self-contradictory because built into its understanding is the idea that there's a group or a people or a situation that needs tolerating and another group that will offer that toleration, empowering the latter with authority to privilege and disempowering the former. And it could be the same with diversity and inclusion if we're not careful, especially if we separate them from one another. Because when you actively pursue a notion of inclusion in a diverse society or a context, it's to say that there is a gatekeeper, an empowered group that needs to permit others in, right? And it's a, the, uh, it needs to permit others in that are otherwise, otherwise marginalized and left on the outside. And the tricky part is if the marginalized group is welcomed in, how can that occur, if at all, so that they now share that inner space equally empowered? So meaning, is there a benefit to being inside if the only way in is to be allowed in by some other entity that is the de facto more powerful one? And pluralism, in some ways, I think, tries to offer a solution to this. Because you have in this pluralistic idea, inclusion isn't an active pursuit, it's the natural state. And it's the struggle that I'm witnessing right now with Muslims around the country um, encountering this. And it's what I, I think we should call like a terrified life, where you have life in the lap of being a community that's stigmatized with this association with terror. Um, and you see this in the variety of events and programming that's surfacing. So it's very common right now for me to see people advertising and promoting a let's meet the Muslim event, right? Where they open up their space to allow people to come and see that they're normal people just like they are or events that are titled, are all Muslims terrorists and Muslims going to speak at those events, I, assuming that they're dispelling that notion. <laughs> um, you know, but insisting in the media or interfaith events um, to their friends and neighbors that Islam means peace, which is technically true if you're looking at this, uh, the semantical definition, but it's also pacifying the faith when anyone who studies Islamic theology knows that it's, it's not a pacifist faith by any stretch of the means even if the vast majority of Muslims today are living a pacifist life. Um, you know, or the example that I mentioned earlier about being hijacked, or that inclusivities being hijacked. And these tactics are all knocks on the door, they're attempts to shatter the imaginations of threat and fear um, to be allowed inside. It's a pursuit of inclusion. And I'm not sure it's going to work, and that's what I wanted to put out there. And I think so long as there is this gate that's there to begin with, so long as some need to knock on its door to enter, and others are empowered to permit them in or not permit them in, so long as diversity is working against itself. And if this framing is, um, this framing is one that we need to continue to be cognizant of throughout this weekend and throughout all of our work, if pluralism <coughs> is to have hope and to have achieve the success that it aspires to. seem bleak at times, but I want to preface it by saying that uh, despite 
everything you're going to hear, uh, the U.S. is still perhaps the safest place for sex uh, in the world. Uh, so, you know, the uh, sex have faced uh, a great deal of terror in, in India, the, the, uh, the place of their origin, and uh, much of that has been with impunity. But when something happens in the U.S., there is generally a consequence. People are brought to justice. <clears throat> so, um, my, and my talk is going to cover uh, two issues. Uh, one is around hate crimes and one is about profiling. To the Sikh American community, uh, September 11, 2001 was a major watershed during the national hate crime epidemic of historic proportions that followed the attacks of Twin Towers. Sikh Americans experienced domestic terror attacks at a rate that exceeded those felt by any other group in the country. The appearance of a visibly recognizable Sikh had been clearly designated as the other in public life. For one Sikh American, the hate crime epidemic began just moments after the Twin Towers fell. Walking to work, he was yelled at, cursed, and chased by several men who somehow identified him as responsible for the attack that had just occurred. Yards away, another Sikh American, this one a physician, helped save the lives of fellow Americans by setting up and manning the first triage station near Ground Zero. This brave Sikh doctor, Navinder Paul Singh Nijjar, not only risked his health near the base of the collapsed buildings, but placed himself at risk from vigilante racists who might mistake him for the enemy. Particularly horrifying for Sikh Americans was the September 15 murder of Balbir Singh Saudi in Mesa, Arizona. The first person to die from domestic terrorism after 9-11, Mr. Saudi was a Sikh American gas station owner who was killed on his business property. Mr. Saudi's murder, a hateful act of racist vengeance, was largely lost on the broader narrative of a national tragedy. Much like the broader epidemic of violent hatred infecting the nation, Mr. Saudi's murder made little long-term impact outside the Sikh community. Mr. Saudi's marginalization is evidenced by the scarcity of his name in public discourse, despite the linkage of his death to 9-11 and the fact that he was killed because of the way he looked, news reports rarely offered the public a photo of Mr. Sodi. The impact of that is now evident. He has never been a prominent symbol of contemporary hate violence in this country and is largely forgotten to the vast majority of Americans. Mr. Sodi's obscurity was verified in April of 2011 when the Arizona's legislature attempted to push through a bill that would have removed his name from the state's 9-11 memorial to sell it for scrap metal. A large protest led by the Sikh American community flooded Arizona Governor Jan Brewer's office with 7,500 letters in just three days, forcing her to meet with the Sodi family and veto the bill. According to the Sikh scholar Jadeep Singh, 9-11 gave rise to the racialization of religious identity and a new racial category that we may call apparently Muslim. <laughs> when stopped by police, when passing through metal detectors at the airports, when applying for jobs, when receiving poor service in restaurants, those encompassed by this designation of apparently Muslim are reminded 
that they have become de facto members of this new racialized group, defined primarily by their appearance, marked by, as other. That they've been, so both racially and religiously marked as other, they've been targeted for hate crimes and singled out due to their physical appearance, which is largely defined by religious symbols, such as facial hair, attire, religious headgear. In this context, religious symbols such as the turban and hijab become racialized indicators in the eyes of those who carry out their assaults. Sikh, Muslim, South Asian, and Arab communities after 9-11 have offered convincing evidence of an ongoing process in which race and religion have commingled to form indispensable aspects of an other identity which is not only clearly outside the nation's mainstream, but one that has been criminalized by the state. The first aspect, those where those carrying this othered identity are pushed out of the American mainstream by politicians and media is fairly well documented. The second aspect of how they are criminalized by the state is where I would like to focus my attention briefly. Among the most harmful law enforcement policies to emerge from the terrorist attacks is the return of open religious and racial profiling, particularly at the airports. In the wake of 9-11, law enforcement officials across the nation detained hundreds of um, innocent Americans because of their appearance. Others were forced off of planes by pilots or crew members, largely for the same reasons. Some of the re religious and racial profiling at airports was relaxed under the Bush administration, but again revived when Obama came to office. I was part of a Sikh coalition delegation that met with the then U.S. Secretary of Transportation, Norman Mineta, in 2001, when Sikhs were being profiled at the airports. They were being forced not only to remove their turbans, but also place them on conveyor belts for scanning. Secretary Mineta, a Japanese-American, who was acutely aware of the price paid by his own community when they were unjustly profiled and interned, you know, he, he gave us uh, time to speak, after listening to our narrative, to his credit, he took important measures that gave six temporary relief from profiling and six were no longer required to remove their turbans. The Obama administration reversed some of these policies and made double screening of six mandatory. What is a double screening? You pass through a metal detector or a puffer machine like everyone else and then you are pulled aside for mandatory screening which is called a secondary screening. This, the notable thing is that this is not the written policy. According to the Transportation and Security Administration, there is a, quote, possibility of additional security screening, which may include a pat-down search of the head cover. Based on the database of complaints received by the Sikh Coalition, almost 100% of turbaned Sikh Americans must undergo double screening. This is a humiliating process where, in the public view, you are asked to step aside, undergo a search of your turban, followed by a chemical test to ensure that you don't have explosives on your person. These explosives are devices tiny enough to fit in anyone's pocket, even underwear, yet six with turbans and many Muslim women with hijabs continue to be singled out for the last decade. 
A lot has changed in the past 50 years since Sikhs began arriving in this country in large numbers with the introduction of the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act. Many of you may be surprised to know that the first Asian American to be elected to Congress was a Sikh man named Dilip Singh San. The Florism Project, not too long ago, screened a documentary on the congressman. In the video footage, while campaigning for office, though without a turban, Dilip Singh proudly tells the media about his Sikh religious tradition and never tries to hide his non-Christian identity. This was 50 years ago. I have often wondered how he would have responded to the question of identity if he were running for office today. For instance, Nikki Haley, the Republican governor of South Carolina, while herself a converted Christian, has almost always excluded her sick family members from the campaign trail. While the United States of Dalip Singh Sound has been able to desegregate schools and become a better and safer place for some citizens, it has also added other elements that continually challenge the pluralistic ideals that remain important to most Americans. Regardless of what happens in the future because of the highly visible nature of the Sikh identity, it is my contention that the Sikh American experience will provide an important litmus test on pluralism and the accept acceptability of religious minorities by mainstream America. Thank you. They told us we have to speak into the mic like we're testifying. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I, I really liked the I pre I really liked the way you said apparently Muslim because uh, one of the ways that people have responded to the attacks on Sikh Americans has been to say accidentally Muslim. They were mistaken to be Muslim suggesting that if they were Muslim, the attack would have been okay, right? And this is the same thing when you hear people say, uh, try to say like President Obama is not a Muslim. Like, he, yeah, like, you know, like, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy you said apparently. And I, I think I've seen, um, you know, like when um, there was the attack at the temple in Wisconsin, um, that most of the Sikh leaders uh, were very clear in resisting that mistaken identity narrative. So, yeah, from the very beginning, uh, I think uh, the Sikh community has taken a very conscious view of that. And uh, we've never said, uh, you know, we're not Muslim. Uh, you know, and uh, interestingly, uh, right after the two, two, 2001 attacks, uh, when there was a lot of uh, violence against the Sikh community, the Prime Minister of India, Atul Bihari Vajpayee, wrote a letter to uh, uh, you know, the, the various congressmen asking them to protect six. And at that time, uh, a number of organizations in New York, uh, you know, I, I was uh, in New York at that time, we got together and we wrote, a, uh, you know, a counter letter to uh, Prime Minister Vajpayee saying that uh, 12 or 15% of Indian population is Muslim. You should also worry about Muslims. 
so, so you know, uh, th that's been the general consensus. I think we'll turn to the audience in just a moment. But I, actually, Ratesh Kurana is here. Yes. And we'd like to have you uh, say a few words as dean of Harvard College um, about the mission of Harvard College and your perspectives on diversity and inclusion. We had a very uh, uh, good presentation from Nancy Khalil about some of the uh, dark sides of what it means to be included and who's doing the including and who's being the gatekeeper. Um, and we've had a great presentation from Zahir Ali uh, about the issues of uh, black Islam in the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, some of the ways in which that social media has garnered a good bit of both support and comment, and from Chloe Breyer about the work of the Interfaith Center of New York on the ground, that is to say at the street level, in relation to everything from alternate side of uh, street parking suspensions <laughs> to school uh, holiday observances to the uh, negotiation and, and uh, mediation on Staten Island between Albanian Muslims and the uh, Catholic organizations. And also the training of police in New York, which has been at the street level an important contribution of the Interfaith Um As I said at the beginning, Rakesh, at least two of these people, Chloe and Zahir were among the earliest researchers in the pluralism project, and uh, evidence of the, you know, the genius of Harvard College students. So, he's a very sort of progressive and, and uh, revolutionary dean of Harvard College. He comes to us from Harvard Business School, where he specializes in organizational behavior. So we look to him for this. Yeah. And okay. I, I, so I, I, first of all, I'm really sorry to miss the beginning of this panel. I appreciate that you being able to adjust the time for me. Uh, yes, so absolutely. That was, uh, really helpful given uh, another opportunity. Just step over so that we get Oh, okay. So, so I, 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 and, and I'm just want to sort of say a few minutes, uh, you know, because I think a lot of what is happening here links very much to what we're experiencing at the college and in our undergraduate um, level. So I always start with the mission of Harvard College, and then I, I'd like to just um, had a chance to talk with Diane a little bit about um, and communicate with her about what, you know, what, um, how this can be helpful to us. So the mission of Harvard College has been for almost four centuries now to educate the citizens and citizen leaders for our society. It's a mission our college takes quite seriously. We help educate some of the people who imagined our nation and uh, its aspirations. Our students, our faculty, our staff were some of the people who led the anti-slavery and abolition movements. Um, other than the two oldest military academies, no institution has actually given more lives in service of its nation than Harvard College. And other than the two oldest military academies, no institution has more people who have received the Medal of Honor than Harvard College. Um, and this notion of uh, service and citizen service runs through so many different events to our economic, political, social, and civic contributions, the women's rights movement, civil rights movement, quality of marriage. Um, and like our own society, our aspirations run ahead of our reality. But we do this through our belief in the transformative power of liberal arts and sciences education. Um, it begins for us with the intellectual transformation, new ways of knowing, new ways of understanding, all toward the goal of developing an independent mind, where our students develop an appreciation for the role of reason and evidence. 
the power of learning how to disagree without being disagreeable. And then embedding that in a very diverse living experience where our students study alongside students who are different from them, come from different walks of life, have different identities, evolving identities, which we believe not only deepens the intellectual transformation, but it creates the conditions for a social transformation, or understanding what it means to be part of a community. That a community is much more than just a collection of interests. That dialogue is not just simply the exchange of claims and counterclaims, where they learn to see behind each other's eyes, to hear from another's perspective, to feel um, from another's heart, to develop what you know, Martha Nussbaum accounts that, uh, uh, describes as the sort of narrative imagination uh, of being around another, and what Diana has, in her own work, described so deeply around the notion of encounter. And then we hope through those experiences, our students begin to answer some questions for themselves. Who am I, and who do I want to be? How do I relate to others and what can I learn from others? What are my gifts and talents and how can I best use them to serve the world? So personal transformation. Um, I was really, really just delighted to have a few minutes to just be here. Um, I'm a product of the 1965 Immigration Act. Um, my parents immigrated here in the early 70s. I was born in India, grew up in Queens, uh, New York. Went to Gurdwara, even though we were Hindu. Uh, 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 cross-faith marriage with a Catholic. Um, and you know that is increasingly, as Diana has written in her own work, a story, not a unique story, it's a story of many of our students, it's a story of this country. Um, and it's a, uh, an inflection point for us at the college. Um, for most of human history, for example, 50% of humanity was not allowed at Harvard College. Um, we had uh, quotas on ethnic, uh, if you worship the wrong God, if you love the wrong way, didn't worship. Um, you couldn't be part of this community. And one of the things I'm really proud of, of being part of Harvard College, I didn't get into the college out of high school, uh, I'm over it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it it's easier to become the dean. Uh, <laughs> But we are at an inflection point as an institution, and I'm so proud of it because I think part of the history of Harvard is this notion, the enlargement of the circle of who we are. Um, and in many ways, I, 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 I've been thinking a lot about a couple of things. One is the notion of pluralism, and, 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 and it's kind of counterpoint, which is, I think, some form of chauvinism or in-group bias. Um, and we're having a very deep, introspective discussion on campus right now around um, gender inclusion, um, which, you know, there's many elements of Harvard which are available to all of our students, but not everything. And we talk about what is the role of intrinsic identity on that. But chauvinism, I, I actually begin to think, is needed when you seek to advance the dominance of power. That's what, it runs in opposition to pluralism. Chauvinism is when you need in-group bias. Pluralism is needed when you need to blunt in-group bias with a moral conscience. Chauvinism needs discrimination. It needs people who see differences as the other. It needs conformity. It needs loyalty to group identity. It needs one to submit to uh, losing oneself uh, and not recognizing individuality. It needs people to become, in my world, as Diana mentioned, in the business school world, 
it needs us to become mindless bureaucratic behavior. That's what it does, is because you have to privilege that. And pluralism stands, I think, in opposition to that because it recognizes all individuals possess an inherent dignity that has to be respected and acknowledged. Pluralism requires the need for actually institutions, norms, rules, in some cases laws that advance equality. So that's, that's what throws the sand in the gears of, of the machinery of uh, chauvinism because chauvinism is finally engineered to do exactly what it's supposed to do is depress possibility, make people feel like an other, exclude, create a, a corrosive self-doubt. So equality and pluralism are the sort of sand that, that, that you throw in the gear of that machine. Indeed, in fact, I think we could state as a hypothesis that the future of our nation right now, and I can certainly say that the future of Harvard College depends on whether it makes available to each individual a community where they feel like they have an authentic sense of belonging um, and, and, and is able to activate and actualize in um, each individual's her potentiality um, of connecting one's individuality to the experience of the community. And that is the kind of project we're in because as our nation's demography has changed because of a variety of different factors, including the Immigration Act, but also because our institution is changing. We're sort of the lead. We get, we get to reach back further in the future because we see younger people. We're the lead of what the issues are that affect the national project and increasingly our global project. I want to just connect that to a second um, idea, and I apologize. It's going to be a little bit inchoate uh, because it, it was more stimulated by uh, an event that Diane and I, had, and I had a chance to go to over on the weekend where we had a chance to hear uh, from uh, Asung Suu Kyi, uh, who is the leader of Myanmar. And there was something that's been just sitting in my head, and Diane, I, I hope you'll um, you know, respond if I get this wrong. She talked that underneath what she thought laid with um, the kind of chauvinist view was fear. And, and I've been just like, I'm saying, what is it that people could be fearing? I don't have an answer to this, but I, I've been thinking about it a lot since Saturday, about what contributes to fear. And I think part of what it is, is our own shame of our own weaknesses, which we then project outwards to others. And then to sort of think about the world of Mary Douglas, think that it could contaminate, profane ourselves. And so we call those people weak, or in some cases in gender, we use you know, derogatory gendered terms, um, because what we're projecting in others is our own fears of ourselves. And, our, and, and, and in order to do that, you then have to see that other as less worthy. You have to see them as an other. You actually, in some cases where we're talking about in our social dynamics, you have to see them as a thing that exists for you to advance your needs or your personal desires. And I think part of that is, and, and I think what is the antidote to that? And you know, uh, people like Diana and Dorothy and others demonstrate this so powerfully, but I think many of our faculty, many of our students, I think the antidote to that is the possibility of acknowledging increasingly that all of us have weaknesses and anxieties, and that, and, and that our vulnerability actually may open up the possibility for a different kind of discourse and conversation. Um, so your work here matters, um, because the research, the descriptions of what's happening in the ground, 
Um, it nourishes our education and our teaching. It has the potentiality of opening up views that are reflected back on us as academics, teachers, students, and people. And I think it gives us a consciousness and a gaze of a kind of reflexivity that is so sorely needed right now as a way of both seeing oneself in someone else's position, but also recognizing that most of what we often fear is the things that we're most anxious about, our own weaknesses, the cracks in our own brokenness um, that we try to hide under masks of perfectionism um, and, and sort of you know, impermeability of, of having achieved some type of perfection. Um, I'm so grateful. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, my background is as a business school person. I'm a sort of private in the capitalist army. Um, but I think one of the things, the last thing I want to say is that this kind of work, not to instrumentalize, is, is so critical, I think, for economic inclusion. Um, because economic inclusion is one, I think, of the human rights that people do in addition to other freedoms. Um, a freedom from want, the dignity from work. Um, humans are, you know, the, um, uh, people who, 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 who aspire to work. And, 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 and as we live in an interconnected global world, you know, part of what the capacities we're trying to develop in our students at the business school is exactly this pluralistic attitude and, 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 and you know, leveling that. So, um, you know, again, I want to welcome everyone here um, on behalf of Harvard College. I know this is one of our, our schools at the university, but I, I really want to thank you for the work that you're doing uh, here. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah, I will. I question or two. Uh, one of the things, um, I mean, I'm so struck with uh, Harpreet's uh, presentation about the uh, issues of double profiling or, you know, double screening at airports and that sort of thing, and the uh, issues of visible difference um, that I don't know if you experienced this as well, Nancy, but, um, but one of the things that I feel, and you know, reflecting on the, the words of Ansan Suchi on Saturday, um, is that fear is also a, a corporate product. And that, you know, if we look at the report of the Center for American Progress called Fear, Inc., um, Fear Incorporated, you realize that there is a kind of production of fear uh, that in this case, uh, in that case, is uh, funded, as I said, by a, a few very, very powerful, maybe seven very powerful uh, families and corporations um, that is researched by supposed researchers. This is mostly the Islamophobic fear, but it goes broader than this. And that is then uh, distributed to the media through their spokespeople. Um, and uh, because we have a media that wants to have an equal balance of, you know, this view and that, you have the, I think you would, who called them the bloggers? That was, uh, uh, that was you, yes, uh, Chloe. Uh, whose voice becomes uh, a part of national discourse in ways that is really toxic. Um, so how to think about not just the human fear that we experience, but the, um, but the fear that is produced by groups with a particular interest. And I think this is a, a significant issue. So, so I, I have two reactions to that. Um, 
One is, is that I think it really calls into question this notion of what I call the marketplace for ideas in a certain way, because this, that's always drawn out as this notion that you know the market of ideas will sort of sort good from bad ideas, those that are kind of empirical relevance from those that are uh, not empirically relevant. It turns out there's a market for bad ideas. <laughs> um, I, I think we don't actually talk about that. Because markets, and again, I don't want to be an apologist for but markets actually depend on certain conditions. For example, they depend on large numbers of buyers world. But in a market, what you just described, Diana, is seven. That's not a market. That's a kind of oligarchy, right? That, 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 that's a small number exerting a lot of influence. It's, it's oligopolistic in, 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 in that way. Um, it turns out there's an unmet demand for hatred uh, for people, you know, that, that, that you know, uh, irresponsible individuals can create a market for, for things like that. And so I think we have to acknowledge that there may be some limitations to this notion for a long time that I think even institutions like ours adopted a little bit of a neoliberal logic of what I would call the marketplace of ideas being one example, when not everybody comes with full information, not everybody's voice is as loud and magnified that, that money and other things can privilege certain voices and ideas over others. Um, so I do think that that's something that those, you know, how we think about the role of the media, which is a very unique institution in our society. It's the only industry protected by the Constitution. There's no other industry that actually exists in the, that's protected in the Constitution. And so it, in, it has this sort of duality of purpose of both serving the democracy, but it's also protected in a way that normal regulatory processes in which sort of poor outcomes, I think that that, that, that is something that well understood. I think the second example I would give is, you know, there's all this discussion about free speech on campus, but when you look at some of the organizations that are sort of advocating that and you look at their funding model, some of that, Jim Sleeper has a um, op-ed in last week's New York Times or maybe two weeks ago, Sunday New York Times, uh, who's a very strong advocate for free speech, but he's arguing that a lot of the sort of, uh, some of the aspects of those organizations that are behind it, if you look at their funding, it's for certain types of speech. Um, and, and not always a kind of equal view, but it gets kind of wrapped in um, you know, what the funding sources are. So I think these are really important points, so I'll just pause there. Probably all of us know that there is a market for chauvinism. Yeah, <laughs> there is a market for some chauvinism these days. When I think, you know, so here, um, you know, you, you gave us the hashtag the tags of being black and Muslim. Uh, you know, Muslim uh, in the, uh, you know, late, uh, black in MSA, um, and retweeted, you know, 142 times, which is popular. But when you look at the market for chauvinism and the number of mm -hmm. retweets of these other things, you want to say, oh my God, we, we wish there were more of, of this as well. And you, you were saying the Black Lives Matter, um, being black and Muslim, they have a lot of women and social media conscious people who are uh, at the helm of this, right? Yeah, I mean, I think um, part of this is that social media is, has allowed more voices access to platforms that they would not have platforms before. Um, you know, there's something people call Black Twitter, 
um, African Americans disproportionately use Twitter than other ethnic groups, um, and, and Black Twitter is something that's kind of informal uh, network of very um, active Twitter users who very quickly, incisively, um, you know, deliver very meme-friendly kinds of messages, and um, that's how Black Lives Matters, um, Black Lives Matters, really Black Lives Matter has really spread. Um, and it's the same reason why, um, or the same um, techniques or, or we see with African-American Muslims, you know, taking advantage of that. I mean, the, the, the hashtags became so popular, you know, BuzzFeed wrote articles about it, um, Huffington Post wrote articles about it. So, I mean, this is where the, there's like a filtering up of what's happening in these Twitter conversations gets picked up by media. And so, you know, Al Jazeera has reported on a lot of these conversations. Um, and these, you know, uh, demonstrate that there, as much as there's a market for bad ideas, there's a demand for uh, robust conversation. Mm -hmm. Ready to see if there's folks here who want to have something to ask or to say. Um, yes, sir. Um, so there's been a lot Just of identify yourself. Oh, uh, Dan Liebert. And um, I, uh, my, my interest is in um, religious extremism as a public health issue. And um, I recently completed a program at Salem State, uh, a master's certificate in Holocaust and uh, genocide studies. And I think as much as there's a market for bad ideas and hatred, there's also a market for bad religious ideas. And when I say that, I mean, as much as we should talk about bigotry towards religion, I would hope we would discuss real bigotry from religion. Absolutely. When Harvard was established, it was um, a Christian college that demonized everyone who wasn't a Christian. And uh, it's... We didn't really demonize. I mean, the first Jew we had on the faculty, we converted. And pluralism, pluralism to me, can be many, but it also in yeah. religious terms, it's uh, there, there are various truths, and uh, there's not one truth that demonizes everyone else. Yeah. So I would hope that that would be discussed. I think that's very important. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. Um, and we have people here who have. You know, Terry, I've been looking at you as someone who was involved with the 9-11 families and has uh, experienced some of the kinds of things that Chloe was talking about. Terry Rockefeller. First of all, I just want to acknowledge um, having worked with the staff of the Pluralism Project to make that CD-ROM um, back in the 90s sometime. Um, after my sister was killed in the World Trade Center, I think the lessons of the Pluralism Project were among the most important lessons I carried forward as I tried to respond. And um, I certainly understand what you're saying. I've, I, I've struggled always um, as a 9-11 family member to differentiate between um, any animosity toward Islam, but also having to understand that the hijackers and the men who now stand accused of, of the attacks purport to be Muslim. I, so it's, it's a struggle. Um, but I don't single out Islam as a religion that, that has led to, to uh, 
to death, destruction, violence, or evil in the world. Um, so those are just some of the complexities I think I struggle with. And I just want to thank everyone on the panel. I'm particularly um, intrigued by how we find, we talked a lot in the Pluralism Project early about the melting pot not being the image we wanted. We talked about America's waves of, of um, metaphors for what, for what we are striving to be. And, um, you know, I love the notion of pluralism. I'm searching for the, the, the metaphors that don't have gatekeepers, the ones that, um, yeah, let me stop there. And closer, I mean, there was, the, there was the orchestra, uh, <laughs> <Yes>. Horace <laughs> Callan, and others. But you know, yeah, absolutely right. Uh, yes, uh, I'm uh, Jennifer Andrew. Peace, and I teach at Andover Newton Theological School and um, have done some work with the Pluralism Project. I'm a big fan of the work of the project. I loved the presentations individually and what they did together. I'm very grateful for that. I, the only comment I wanted to make was there is a really good op-ed piece in the New York Times today that focused our thinking on how we demonize whole groups of people rather than looking at the capacity for hatred that every individual has. And I think, you know, this particular op-ed was actually focusing on Hillary Clinton's now famous basket of deplorables <laughs> and the, the challenge of reducing people whole people and whole groups of people to one capacity, basically, and then lumping everyone in there. And I think what everyone on this panel is sort of saying is this task of self-understanding and humanization and then your comments about being available for um, and honest about our own vulnerabilities and our own limits and weaknesses. But to me, that's really where all this needs to take us in our classrooms and in our community. Yeah, I think, um, and this kind of might speak to a little bit to your, your point as well. Um, a lot of times what happens is if someone does, well, first of all, we know that um, certain groups are allowed their individual crazies while other groups are not. And that's a privilege, right? And that's, <laughs> if you are a marginalized minority group, you don't have the privilege of having individual people who go off the, the wagon, right? Um, that said, I think the defensive instinct to engage in social distancing um, where, you know, you, you have to, people are like, well, that person is not part of our community, that's not what we're about, you know, those kinds of, of distancing does prevent people from confronting um, how that person might be like you, like the, the crazy, I shouldn't say crazy, but the person that does some extreme activity. I, I think of the Orlando attack, um, which did prompt a very, again, online and social media that then trickled up to, to major, mainstream media, a very robust conversation about homophobia and Islam, yeah. right? Um, or homophobia and Muslims, not Islam, and Muslims. And especially, you saw the emergence of uh, previously not, uh, not heard as much um, LGBTQ Muslims, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, who were saying, yes, there are issues within the Muslim community around LGBT concerns, but we also are not going to participate in this conversation in a way that allows our community to be unfairly 
uh, maligned. So I think it's a, I think that was a perfect example of people calling out um, the potential for extremism within the community, but doing it in a way that didn't allow Fear Inc. to yeah. capitalize off of it. Yeah, just to, to, um, to underscore what you're saying, I can remember actually going to three vigils um, right after Orlando where, you know, the groups that you're talking about who, again, suddenly were there, um, alongside um, three different imams, mm -hmm. very well respected in the community, one of whom deeply homophobic things on his website, were there as well. There was eye contact. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was polite clapping. There was, I'm sorry, you know, there were like, which, and one, um, an imam from, from Afghanistan who um, made it very clear, you know, who, who's been in this country since the 80s, had, had to survive a, an ethnic, you know, fallout within his own mosque that he eventually got thrown out of, but then reestablished another one. Um, went on the radio saying that he did not, um, Islam, according, you know, Islam did not um, support homose homosexuality. However, when you move to a country, you have to abide by the laws of that country. He then went on to um, support a town hall that took place at Judson, where he was pretty hammered for that point of view, but what was interesting was to, which on, on its face, you, you know, I'm, there are people, every, I would totally disagree with him, and I've talked to many Muslims who would also totally disagree with him. But knowing where he came from and who his constituency is, it was like, Amazing. I've never, I mean, it was like the thing, I think of like, what gives this work meaning? Like, that's what gives this work meaning. I might also say, I'm uh, just thinking of the Oak Creek um, shooting that, uh, that Harpreet mentioned and that we'll hear more of this evening. But on the fourth anniversary of that, uh, I don't know if it was in Oak Creek and Milwaukee or elsewhere, maybe broadly, there were Sikhs who included in their uh, remembrances the uh, folks who had been victims of violence at Orlando Pulse nightclub. I mean, the sense of, you know, broadening this scope beyond us. I'm also saying this from a communion that's split over um, issues of, of human sexuality. So, yeah. you know, to your point about, yeah. You yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, yes. Yeah, you know, there's a very small community in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, a small number of six, but, and there's such an outpouring from the larger community that it has a, such a wonderful synergistic uh, impact where uh, you know the, the six got involved, the uh, the larger community got involved, and then this uh, you know commemorations continued, and it's broadened in scope. Uh, you know, as uh, th these other incidents happen, they are included in the uh, you know commemoration. And the many voices in communities generally that do not want to be identified as victims, <coughs> but as activists. In Absolutely. Can I just ask a question? Because we had this wonderful student panel last night that included Hala Ahmed, who was uh, with the Harvard Islamic Society and who worked actually in Milwaukee on a sort of um, what something that grew out of Oak Creek, Creek the, the something called Serve to Unite, that brought a, a ex skinhead together with the with the uh, 
son of the leader of the Sikh temple who was killed uh, in a youth service program is very, very inspirational. So Hama was there, and, uh, and Olmatunde Obunaike, who was uh, with um, Memorial Church and Christian group, and, uh, and Bimal Konduri, who was the head of Dharma, the Hindu student group, and then Emma Wu from the Interface Forum. Now, uh, one of the things that came out of this for me was that there were, as Emma said, in being asked, what do you hope that will be your legacy? She said, I think the legacy should be that diversity and inclusion at Harvard College should include discussion of religion. And she said, you know, diversity means lots of things, but it doesn't often mean the recognition of our religious differences. And you use the term religion occasionally, but I, and we do have a Sikh community now, and Hindu and Baha'i and Asian American Christian Fellowship and, uh, but you know, how do we steer into religion when many people are just afraid of that as part of diversity? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, it's interesting because I think we have that in a very fundamental way. It's like one of these topics we just don't discuss in uh, kind of an open form. And I think partly it goes to Harvard's history is that it went from this and it just went completely secular and kind of, it's, it, it, you know, I, taboo. Uh, and in, in a strange way, I think it comes back in ways that like even in Turkey that we now see where you went from a society where, you know, religion was a critical part and then it was sort of by the state just kind of became a non-part. It doesn't disappear because the yearning for spiritual and power, you know, and uh, goes away, uh, doesn't go away. And now we're seeing it in a way that I think is, is, is not helpful. There was a few things that just struck me about what you, both the panel as well as, you know, our own community, because it's also true on political beliefs that many of our students feel like they can't openly discuss a pluralism of political beliefs on campus. Um, that, 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 and, and I think there's something about where we go to sort of getting closer to the core of identity when you get to the sort of operating system level. We haven't developed pedagogies and capacities that allow us to sort of create an environment where people feel like they can share them and yet not be judged. So using less what our students call judgy eyes. Um, and not be accused also of harboring, you know, all of the other elements that may be associated that an individual may have differences with their sort of faith or uh, political identities. It struck me and, and not to be sort of practical about it, but there's four antidotes that I would suggest that might work just even given what was just heard. Um, so one is, is that, you know, our brains are very binary. Like, you know, this is not an original idea. This goes back to Jung and Durkheim and others. Like, you know, we just sort of binarize things, you know, day, light, short, tall, um, you know, women, men. It's, it's kind of how we begin organizing the world, but, what it blinds us to is continuum, that in fact very few things actually show up in sort of discrete categories, in fact it's continuum. So how do we have conversations that allow for continuum rather than binar binary? The second thing is that most of our identities are multiplex, right? And yet we sort of often, on the visible identity, what's most visible, you know, we focus on and we don't see the less visible identities and also not acknowledge and not, you know, to earlier what I caught as the last part of the panel, not acknowledge that different identities are more salient in different contexts than other contexts, but also have more costs and benefits depending on those identities. So I think the multiplexity, emphasizing multiplexity seems to be an important part. The other is the innocence 
narrative that we're innocent and there's somebody else then who must be guilty rather than acknowledging in our own worlds that nobody's really purely innocent and nobody's guilty. But I think that, again, is another example where we sort of do that. And I think, again, thinking about how we overcome our own narratives and have some reflection and critical aspects. I do recognize this privilege to be able to critiquing your own place because it comes from a different safety perspective. But I do think that that innocence guilt thing limits some areas of progress here. Um, I don't know what the right metaphor is uh, to, to, to talk about you know, what should be the metaphor for the 21st century. I, I'm a soci my background is an organizational sociologist of elites and leadership, and a lot of my research is kind of cutting down, you know, we should be very skeptical of charismatic leadership. But in, it, I have this other life, which is different from my scholarly life, where I become groupies of certain people I admire. Um, and there's two people who... I've just been really interested in following and just learning a lot about them. Um, one is obviously one you probably, you know, Pope Francis, and, and, and the way that he does seem to use continuous language, multiplex of identity, and, you know, nobody's innocent, nobody's guilty. Like, that, that seems to be some part of it. The other person is um, Justin Trudeau, who, you know, I mean, pluralism used to be our story. Like, we used to own it, not Canada. Like, like when did we lose that? That used to be the American thing to talk about, like, this country in which our sense of who we are was built on what I would call creed rather than ethnicity. And I went back, because I do a little Google stalking of Justin Trudeau, uh, and started reading the speeches of his father, and it's interesting, in 1971, Canada was at a very similar point, just as they had changed their Immigration Act, and um, also the reckoning with indigenous people, and there's still a lot of work, I'm not saying Canada is a perfect society, but also the language issues. And I read a speech in 1971 that Pierre Trudeau gave to the Federated Parliament of Canada, which laid out, it was a very short speech, two pages, but, uh, or three pages. It was basically the principles around which Canada would now organize itself in both acknowledging individual identity and saying, but that gives people the confidence to participate in the national identity. And it actually had four very actionable elements to it in terms of that resources will be provided to all groups to feel confident in their cultural identity, not just the most powerful. So no distinguished, we're only gonna help the weak. We're and then just went through a series of really actionable things about how language would be considered. I, I, I'm not saying that that's the directionality that we should go in in this country, but you know, sometimes looking at what other people have done and where I think, I have relatives who live in Canada. I, I don't think they're having the same tearing apart of the social fabric right now. And so Terry, to your earlier question, maybe some of the metaphors or inspirations can be found in conversation with these kind of vanguard leaders who seem to be moving their institutional frameworks and language and metaphors in a certain way, so. Thank you, Ritesh. And group identity is something we haven't actually recognized in the United States. So this is, a, this is an issue. Our rights are individual, not group rights. But now I would like to uh, thank the panel and Rakesh Kurana uh, for the this incredibly <laughs> interesting
interesting, uh, we could go on for the whole conference now, but I want to introduce two other people who are here uh, for our lunch of the sort of El Hebre uh, sort of blue ribbon panel on uh, discussion at lunch today. And uh, that is Imam Khalid Latif from uh, NYU, the chaplain for the uh, Muslim chaplain for the University of New York, and, uh, and also Rabbi Yehuda Sarna. Um, I've met both of them primarily in film because they uh, produce or was produced uh, under the direction of uh, Chelsea Clinton. A wonderful film that we uh, had uh, at the Cambridge Public Library last January called Of Many. And it really is it's about what NYU has done, which is inspirational in many ways, but also about these two gentlemen and the ways in which they have come to work through tough stuff in the university together. So uh, we're going to adjourn to the room at the other end of the hall for uh, uh, a little lunch that's been prepared there. And in about uh, 15, 20 minutes, when we've given you guys a chance to have a bite of lunch as well, we'll hear from them in uh, the brown room at the other end of the hall. So thank you, and a great round of applause.